0: Hello and welcome to the Human Factor podcast, a series of conversations discussing the topics and themes influencing the world of work today. My name is Michael Esau. I'm a global HXM advisor at SAP. My name is Simon Humphreys, I'm a solution architect at SAP. So Simon, this promises to be an enlightening episode. So we're discussing today how to design a user experience that has impact. Uh, And and I think you and I are both keen here that it's not just a technological viewpoint, but it's taking into account that whole person. So what are you looking forward to from from this episode? So for
1: me, Michael, I'm really interested to know what drives us to create things. uh, And then how do we use that knowledge to design more sticky applications? There's so many technologies out there, so many different apps that are competing for our attention. But what makes... The successful ones, successful so uh, i'm really looking for some insights from our guest on that topic
0: i totally agree i think the pieces for me are going to be around adoption versus consumption I, I think that's a huge topic now today and what that actually means in terms of how we consume capability what's the thinking that sort of sits behind that that's something that i'm really looking forward to uh, on this episode
1: it's my great pleasure to introduce dr caitlin Sendra. Caitlin is an organizational psychologist and employee experience product scientist at SAP SuccessFactors. Before her current role, Caitlin served as a research analyst on the SuccessFactors Growth and Insights team, where she conducted original applied research on such topics as employee well being, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and dynamic teams. Now, in her current role, Caitlin works to translate psychological research and principles directly into SuccessFactors products. She earned her PhD in industrial organizational psychology from Wayne State University. Caitlin also speaks conversational Japanese, and she has two rescue German shepherd dogs that she's completely obsessed with. Welcome to the podcast, Caitlin. Pleasure to have you here.
2: Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: What I'd like to do is just set the context for the episode first, uh, just so that we can you know, understand what we're going to talk about, frame the conversation, if you like. But, you know, The world of work's changing, uh, and the podcasts that we've been running so far have been touching on different aspects of these changes. I think one area that we haven't yet delved into in great detail is the topic of the user experience and the associated adoption that might come from that. We all know that a badly designed technology solution can kill a project very quickly, but we're seeing an explosion of technology solutions in our daily lives, internet banking, online shopping, navigation aids, entertainment, streaming, and so on. And so as users, we're used to consuming this technology, but how can organizations design and deploy workplace technology so that they can be easily used from day one with minimal explanation, but also ensure that it's easy to consume and adopt? In episode four of our series, we we talked with Vikas Shah, and he talked passionately about the topic of human-centric design. And so in this episode, we just want to go a little bit deeper into that and explore how technology can be designed for successful outcomes. What are the good design principles that might apply? And what are some of the pitfalls that people could think about avoiding? And how can we use psychology best practices to ensure that we keep the user at the centre of everything we do? How we work in the future will be different. It's different today as it was yesterday. But we need to look very differently around how organizations will succeed by really buying into and leveraging those individual contributions and brilliance from all of our employees because we're giving them the technology to enable them to do that. So what I'd like to do is then just sort of open this up and and let's take a step back. Let's talk a little bit more generally first. Let's just start that conversation by looking at this concept of designing stuff. We've been doing it for thousands of years, but what drives us? to create things as human beings?
2: Uh, isn't that such a good question, right? Of course, we've been creating things, as you say, for all of human history, we've always been creating things. But uh, I don't think it's often that we take that step back and ask, why is it that we create things? What is it that makes us unique as humans that allows us to create things? And, you know, when I think about this topic, I actually, there's a really, really fantastic meta-analysis that came out in the academic literature a couple of years back. And they actually, they looked at this question from a really macro lens of what motivates people to be creative. And they actually looked at bunch of different studies of the sample of humans is over 50,000 people in the study. And actually what they found is it really boiled up into these three key components, which is people need to have the intrinsic motivation. And I'll go into more about what that means. I think that's a topic I I like to talk about a lot, is intrinsic motivation. And then the other two components are creative self-efficacy. So how confident we are in our ability to be creative and to design innovative solutions. And then the third one, which I love, that I think we don't often think about in a work context, but actually the third one is pro-social motivation. And that's our motivation to design things that are helpful to other people. Um, so to take a step back and talk a little bit more about intrinsic motivation, because that's a really important topic on its own, intrinsic motivation is a really key um construct in the motivational literature, and it basically posits that humans are going to be intrinsically motivated, they're going to want to do something, if that thing makes them feel competent, if it makes them feel related to others, and the third one, If they have the choice to do it, if they have autonomy. And that's another thing that I I like to talk a lot about, which is that as humans, we do not like being taught what to do. We like to be able to make our own decisions. We like to make things that we feel passionate about. So this kind of creates this, this larger picture, boils up to this picture that humans create and we design things because they find value in the thing that's being created both for themselves, so we have the autonomy portion, and for others. Where we have this pro-social motivation, we can see how it impacts others, how it somehow creates a better experience for other people in the world. Um, and those were the three really, really large factors. And I think that really resonates with our, you know, our day-to-day work at Success Factors as we move from this HCM framework to HXM, Human Experience Management. Really, what the shift is moving towards is how do we create better work? How do we change work for good? So we're tapping into that pro social ma- motivation and then of course internally we have these all these systems we talk a lot about um whole self portfolio whole self model which allows employees to tap into and express what they feel passionate about so we know that when people are working on things that they feel passionate about we see genuinely more creativity better design and then a better end product
1: a great way of explaining it and I think we saw elements of that, if I recall correctly, Michael, going back to episode two, when we talked about learning, why do people want to create learning for other people? And sometimes it's sharing it for their own benefit, but sometimes people get reward from that by knowing that they've helped somebody else. And I think what you're saying there is you know, that applies to a lot of things we do, but especially just around creating things generally. Yeah, how can we then design and build modern solutions? You know, we're no longer talking about the wheel or the axe, for example, but how do we create these modern solutions that create this maximum appeal? We've seen so many different examples. I think, yeah, if I recall correctly, the quote around, it took us sort of 50 years or so to evolve you know, certain technologies, but it took 50 days or something like that for the online apps. suddenly get huge audiences they've created an appeal to a user that's that's made that really appealing and really bought into some element of our human psyche that's made us want to go and download that app and start using it what elements are there in that that we can sort of you know pick through and have a look at
2: yeah i think there's a simple answer and i think there's a complex answer Um, And so the simple answer is that uh, there's this very, very well known, well established, well documented model um, in the psychological literature called the technology acceptance model. And this essentially indicates that humans will adopt any new technology that fulfills an immediate need that they have, and they perceive it as being useful and easy to use. And so this is where our critical UX design, creating compelling, simple designs is so critical. It is not sufficient to create something that does a task. <laughs> something like the wheel, something like the ax that does a task. Now it's okay, it does the task, but it does it in a way that is has to be super intuitive, super easy to use, super you know minimal training, minimal cognitive load while I'm engaging in that tool. Um, and that's gonna make that tool more appealing than another tool on the market. And so I think that brings me to the complex layer of the question, which is, you know, how do we get from building things like that to building things like all of these technology solutions that are coming out and drawing for our attention simultaneously? And I think the the, the thing that we're grappling with now is big data, um, machine learning algorithms specifically that are actually tapping into these core components of who we are without us even knowing. And this is where things get a little tricky. We start to dive into the ethical components of this because the bonus of machine learning algorithms is that we can create these super simple solutions that are based on you, based on your individuality, that make it so it's so easy for you to interact with. But then the other side of this is Sometimes it can almost go too far and it it starts to activate what I like to call our creep factors, which is how did you know that about me? Why do you know that about me? And why wasn't I informed that you know that about me? So it creates this interesting dichotomy between it really is so key to creating our modern solutions, our modern platforms, but we also now have all these new uh, data ethics uh, that we have to grapple with all the time. So it's it's really funny. And I think we're, we're still uh, figuring it out in a lot of ways.
1: Well, we're going to touch on that dark side a little bit later, maybe, and go into a little bit more detail about that creep factor you talked about. But I just want to bring in Michael here. You got a question?
0: Yeah, no, I do. I do. I'm loving this. The technology acceptance model, I just want to touch on that for a moment. So I, I love this. So when it fulfills an immediate need that they have, And they perceive it as being useful so i've long considered in recent times that outside of the workplace at home we curate ultimately what our experience is how we consume capability in what way nobody nobody really tells us but obviously everything you've described there about how i view the technology to get something done i suppose one thing i wanted to ask therefore then is people sometimes underestimate when we say that when people come into work today They're expecting an experience that is commensurate with what they have at home. I think that's a hygiene factor now. I I don't think this is a myth. This isn't just I want nice technology. Uh, It is literally I'm accustomed to being able to get things done when I want to get them done. And it's easy to do. Would you agree?
2: I absolutely agree. And I think, oh, my gosh, I, I love this point that you're making, which I think for too long in the business technology world, we have been complacent by saying, oh, our technology completes a task good enough. What, is, what else is there left to accomplish? Um, and yeah, as our consumer world has evolved and exploded with all of these modern day solutions, with all of these algorithms that help it to be intuitive and easy and simple, it is not sufficient anymore, right? It is absolutely not sufficient anymore for our technology to solve a task. We want that experience to be the same as in our consumer lifetimes. And I think this is especially true As we see the younger generations entering the workforce full flow, they have been experiencing these kinds of technologies since they have memory, right? And so they don't know the world (laughs) where things were not intuitive and easy to use and everything was super difficult and required on-premise solutions and, you know, all all of these things. And so especially as we see these younger generations entering the workforce, having our work technology be at the same standard as consumer technology is going to be so critical, absolutely critical.
0: It really is. And, and, and I think it has become an interesting debate. Yeah, Simon. And
1: just to build on that again, then, are there also different types of psyche from the user's perspective? You know, there are going to be some people that it's technology, I want to use it. You know, and I'm going to have a certain degree of tolerance if it's not so easy to use because it's something new. I'm an early adopter. I really want to sort of make this work, almost, versus maybe the the naysayer. Yeah, you know, I, I I'm I'm not going to use this technology until I'm absolutely forced and have to use it. And you know, everybody else is probably somewhere in between there. So you know, our our new product, our new piece of technology, has to appeal to all those different um you know, mindsets, if you like. Are there any observations in terms of when designing that as to how you can incorporate that aspect in?
2: Yeah, I think it's a great uh, it's a great topic. We actually at Success Factors we have a whole research team that researches the psychology of workforce trends. And one of our current projects that we're just wrapping now is how do we create positive employee experiences through intelligent technology? And one part of that study is looking at all of these different factors, which actually impact the degree to which you are willing to adopt new technology. So we have the technology acceptance model, which says that there are these broad factors which influence a lot, but actually there's a layer behind the technology acceptance model, which is individual differences. Psychology, we love to talk about individual differences, what makes you unique in your experiences. And we do see that. Your person personality, for example, will have a very large impact on your willingness to adopt a new technology. We also have experience with technology in the past. If you've had positive experiences adopting new technologies in the past, you are going to be more open to doing it again. Also, we have age factors, which is probably a lot to do very correlated with experience, right? Um, People have been using the same technology maybe for decades, might be more resistant to that change because it's worked for them before. Why would you change it? And so the question that's really interesting is, okay, so we have all of these different people with all of these different needs. How do we actually go about catering to those different people? And so there's a couple of different ways that, that we can do it. And there's a couple of different ways that we're thinking about it within our technological solutions, um, because we are doing things that are really different, especially from the HR technology world, especially things that are relying on big data and asking you to really buy into the system so we can make your work experience better. And so there are a couple of things we focus on, one of which is transparency. We think that transparency is really, really critical. We do not want to create this kind of Facebook-esque, Google-esque experience where we just learn things about you and you didn't even know that we were collecting that data. We think that transparency, giving those upfront expectations, is going to be super, super important to gaining that broad buy-in across different folks, as well as not only data transparency, but also to the extent to which we could tap into autonomy Um, We also think that that is going to build that more robust adoption across different groups of people. And when I talk about autonomy, what I'm saying is for the extent that is is possible, um, and this is something that really wasn't done, you know, if your company adopted an HR solution, a work solution, it was mandatory, everybody did it. We're trying to push more towards a way where we could have individual users, individual employees, individual workers adopt those solutions individually. They can buy into the system. We want them to tell us what data they're comfortable with telling us and what data they're not comfortable with telling us. And we want them to be able to benefit from the system all the same. So I think those are the really two key components that we're looking at right now in order to gain that buy-in across these very uh, different groups of people.
1: I'm guessing there's a degree, Then, when you talk about the transparency there, it's also potentially the explanation of where that technological solution is in its development cycle. If it's an early thing, you tell people it's an early thing and we want feedback, versus you know, not telling them that, but then the expectation is set that it's a more mature product, maybe our tolerance criteria is therefore lower, and we want it to be more aligned to what we want to use.
2: That's the thing that we practice and we preach, right? We always, with all of our solutions, we have beta testing phases. We have early adopter phases where we tell our customers very, you know, transparently. We're seeking feedback. You have the opportunity here to influence the solution based on the needs and based on the experience. Um, So, yeah, exactly. We try to be very transparent about that.
1: Great. Michael, I'd like to bring you in here.
0: Yes, just a question on adopt. This word adopt. If we look at the explosion of digital platforms, I don't know. Facebook, uh, YouTube, I mean, what can't you learn on YouTube? You know Twitter, for example, people just put content on there and we just go there and we just consume, consume, consume merrily. And I never think that, that I'm adopting YouTube. I'm adopting Twitter. I'm just consuming it. So why is it, though, in the work context, do we still have this thing of we want people to adopt Capability and 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 maybe we're going to debate this a little bit further on about is it just about the technology is it way more than that because you already came up with that keyword earlier on about relevancy and you can never get away from relevancy so uh, before we sort of go into the next next big question what's your thoughts on this word adopt.
2: That's such a funny question. It's, you know, it's one of those things. It's a, a word that you use and you don't realize that you're using it. And it's probably because that's the word that we've used in the past. <laughs> right? And, you know, maybe it's something to do with, you know, whereas I can go to YouTube, Twitter, Google, you know, for free, maybe if it's a a technological solution that I'm buying, maybe I might think that the word adopt is a little bit more appropriate. So maybe it has something to do with the uh, monetization nature of the technology and our relationship with the customer. But really, when we're talking about adoption, it's not just did you buy the license? It's are you using the technology? And is it useful and completing the task and you want to be able to use it? So I, I think it's it's such a key point And maybe it's almost a word that I, I myself have to check because we do want people to consume the technology and not just adopt the license. So that's such a great point
1: now of course you know, with technology comes a lot of technology solutions you know, and there's a lot of products out there that are competing for our attention we've seen historically there tends to be a convergence to certain solutions over others maybe it does it in a better way or maybe there's a a, everybody else is using it therefore i should use it this user adoption advantage that exists but how does our modern brain digest all of these different competing solutions and start to sift through what i do and don't want to use
2: yeah such a a great question and i think the reality from my perspective as coming at this from the lens of a psychologist, to me, the reality is we don't. We do not give all solutions equal weight in our decision-making processes. Um, so in a lot of, you know, if you look at the cognitive psychology, social psychology, a lot of what we talk about is the phrase that's often used is the brain is the cognitive miser. We want to conserve cognitive resources and The only way that we can do that is by taking shortcuts in our decision-making. And so when we look at all of these solutions that exist on the market, imagine the amount of brain power it would take to sit and say, Okay, now let me fully consider this one. Now let me fully consider this one. Now let me fully consider this one. And then once I've done looking at all of their different components, okay, now let me go and compare and contrast each of them individually, we just do not have the mental capacity to be able to do that. And so that's where mental these mental shortcuts, what we often call heuristics will come into play. Um, And so there's one that you hit on, you know, other people use it. So probably works for me, that's really what we would call the availability heuristic, which is I'm going to lean into things that are top of mind. So we often think of the availability heuristic as as a human, I might think that planes are quite dangerous because I saw a plane crash on the television because I cannot think about all of the data simultaneously about actually plane crashes are quite rare and actually your risk is quite low compared to driving in a car. I know it because it's at the top of my mind. And so that's why we see this convergence to particular solutions, because if it's working for other people, it probably will work for me. And I know a such and such person who's in a similar position as me, this solution is something that is working towards them. So then you get to the really interesting question, which is if we have this really strong pressure of convergence among people, people flock in groups, it's the way of our nature, it's the way our brains work, how do we get people to not to use that word adopt, but maybe consume, (laughs) you know, new solutions. And I think it really goes back to, you know, why people create things, but also these, these motivations around technology, which is technology acceptance model, is the new technology, solving a novel problem, If so, then we're going to see a lot of adoption. If it's not solving a novel problem, it might be solving a classic problem, but in a novel way, maybe in a way that is more simple, that has that more simplicity, easier to use, easier to learn, that will also drive um, more of that market towards that new solution. So if if it is really difficult, it's a saturated market in the technology world. And so if you're going to make those moves, I mean, of course, marketing is huge, because again, if somebody else is using it, then it works for me. But if you really want to move beyond just the marketing part, the solution, the design has to be super intuitive. It has to be solving a novel problem, or it has to be solving an existing problem in a way that is much more novel or much more simplistic and easy to use.
1: That's fantastic. And I'm going to throw a grenade in at this point. We've got three people on this podcast. I have an Apple Watch. Other watches may exist (laughs) and are available. My colleague, Michael, had an Apple Watch and stopped using it. Caitlin, you have never even had a smartwatch. Now, there's three very different views over something which is probably, you know, again, taking the brand out of this. Smartwatches are a well-recognized, user-adopted technology in the marketplace, but three very different reactions to it. Any, Any thoughts on that?
2: Yes, individual needs. Everybody has individual needs. And so, Simon, your individual need in technology, something about your individual need was solved by the Apple Watch. Whereas, Michael, whatever thoughts that you had about, oh, maybe it'll solve this, maybe it'll solve this for me, it didn't happen. Otherwise, you would still be using it. And for me, you know, the third part of the equation is, you know thinking about my life i work remotely so i'm not travelling much i i'm always at my computer i've always got my smartphone handy there was not a to me personally in my opinion there was not unique enough of a need in order for me to try to even consume that technology in the first place and michael perhaps you were uh, <laughs> maybe you're suffering from the availability heuristic where oh everybody else has got an apple watch so why don't i give it a shot even though it might not be suiting my specific needs
0: it's spot on. I mean, that, that is spot on. I, it, it, I hadn't thought about how it was going to fit into the rhythm of my life. And so I quickly deduced by wearing it for a week, I wasn't using it. I just it just felt uncomfortable. It wasn't getting into the rhythm. I just it's, it's an interesting point, though, because I'm wrestling in my head now about we, we talk in organizations when we're looking at consuming the capability to do something, the importance of managing that change. But a reflection already for me from this podcast episode is, how are we marrying up the organisation versus the individual need? So it's the push and the pull. It's not just one way. So thanks for the grenade, Simon. (laughs) I'm loving this conversation, by the way. (laughs) Bringing bringing back such a horrible memory and a wasted (laughs) investment and this lovely device that gathered dust on my my desk. Thank you.
1: I mean, I think the other observation from my perspective is, I never thought I thought about it as much as I clearly have done. Not just the Apple Watch, I mean, generally. And and yeah, that just maybe goes to show that a lot of this is actually maybe also subconscious when we're we're doing this sort of assessment, this this, this amount of urgency or need that I may have. It's not necessarily front of mind, but it's clearly taking over my decision-making process and controlling
2: that. Oh, it's just about to say, because you're hitting on something really key here, when we talk in uh, psychology about heuristics, these decision making shortcuts, we are almost never conscious that we're making shortcuts in our in our brains when we're, we, we just we just do it. It's just the way our brains work. We make these shortcuts really, really quickly. So I just wanted to hit on that.
1: That's great. Now let's take that trip to the dark side that we talked about earlier. Yeah, you know, we've got this technology creeping into all our lives, and and you know sometimes not creeping into your life, Caitlin, because you don't have a, a watch. But let's take the the brand names out of this. I mean, I, I have to use them. You know, Alexi, Siri, um, these these smart devices that are creeping into our homes. They're changing the way we think about using technology potentially. What's what's the what's the flip side of that? You know, are, are children learning not to say please and thank you, because those devices don't require it? And playing devil's advocate, are we forgetting even basic skills like how do we navigate? Because I've got a sat nav in my car that tells me where to go, and I don't have to work out where to go anymore. You know, there's many different examples and, and phrases only, but am I now starting to lose skills as a result of technology?
2: Almost certainly. <laughs> Uh, That's the short answer. Right. Um, There's a much longer answer to this, I think, which is when it comes to the dark side of technology. I think there's there's this there's this paper that I really love to to talk about and reminding us what are those pieces of human intrinsic motivation. Right. Competence. We like to feel competent. We like to feel related to others and we like to feel autonomous like we're in charge. And there's this paper that came out that that highlighted, and I love the name that they gave to this. I think it's just so fun and a little ominous, um, but they called it the I Paradox Triad. So if you think of the iPod, the iPhone, it's that I, I Paradox Triad, which essentially says that for all technology that we see nowadays, smart technology in particular, there are ways in which those technologies can both help and hinder those three different components of human motivation, which are so linked to human well-being, right? And so I love, one of the examples I love to give is for, you know, relatedness to others, um, and that I joined Success Factors in January of 20, oh my gosh, 2020, yes, um, and so I joined on a remote team, but the ex- expectation, of course, was, oh, we'll go out, I'll, I'll meet the team, we'll travel, uh, and then lo and behold, COVID hit, and now we, here we are two years later, March of 2022, and I have never, ever met another SAP employee in person. Um, it's All of my experiences have existed in this virtual world, so even though I'm isolated in my little office and, you know, I'm working from home in isolation, in reality, because of smart technology, I, that is not my experience. I feel connected. I have friends. I have coworkers that I care about, um, and all of this through through this, um, you know, these kinds of smart technologies. And we see this the same for competence in autonomy. So on the one hand, um, a lot of our work can make us feel super competent. We could do things faster, smarter, um, but also it, it can activate uh, threat responses where, oh my gosh, maybe my skills aren't relevant. Maybe I'm gonna lose my job. Maybe I'm not competent or as competent as I need to be to stay ahead of the game. And then on you know, this autonomy side, Again, talking about the dark side, I can feel like, oh, I have all this more time thanks to technology to work on things that I'm interested in. Um, but also, I didn't choose you to track my data and collect all this information about me. And I didn't feel like I had a buy into this. And now you might even be making decisions about me based on the data that I did not agree to give. Um, and so I can actually feel like actually my autonomy is being ripped away from me and quite <laughs> not to give a violent metaphor, but really it can feel that way if if we have technology that doesn't lean into this trust and transparency. And so you you hit on a couple other different points here, which is what about skills? Like, are we losing skills? And, you know, you said you're going to be you were playing the devil's advocate, I'll be the devil's advocate to your devil's advocate, which is that I think that we have been losing skills for as long as humans have been innovating and creating things. So if you think about, you know, jobs that used to exist, we used to have people whose entire job was to interpret telegraphs. You had people who had those really big cameras that needed somebody as a job to be able to man those cameras. And film projectionists as well. You know, there's all these skills that people had that their entire livelihoods were based on that skill. And those jobs don't exist anymore. And that's because we now have technology that makes those skills not needed for today. So I always push back a little bit when it comes to this thing, which is does the younger generation know how to use maps almost certainly not (laughs) everybody knows how to use the gps but if that's a skill that we don't need then i'm okay letting it go in terms of these new skills um data data science data literacy machine learning that we might now be freed up to focus in on these new skills that emerge every day well and the other thing i wanted to hit on there is that if gps suddenly no longer existed i think we've got bigger problems to worry about honestly. (laughs) So I'm pretty confident that if in our current trajectory, we are going to have the GPS. So I'm not worried about those kinds of skills. But that's the hard skills. The other thing you hit on was the soft skills, which I think is the really more interesting side of this equation, right, which is the way that people are developing, you know, we think about children, we still of course, we have parenting and education, which are so critical. But then you have the fact that at the end of the day, All of these children who are developing, they might have, thinking about this connectedness to others, they might have their in-person persona with their friends and their family, and then they might have a completely different anonymous persona online, where all social norms are just thrown out the window. And, you know, I think that we are still learning about the impact that that is going to have on childhood development, but I think it's going to make the role of parenting and education on these things so much more critical. I think our educational systems need to step up now rather than later in terms of teaching kids about the online personas and you know how these things could have still have real re- repercussions and how social skills are still incredibly important. And there's still these all these things that we need to consider despite the fact that we're, we have all these social norms kind of dissipating on the online environment. But man, it's a really interesting question and it's going to be interesting how it plays out.
1: That's such a great answer, and I'm going to dig into that in a little bit more, uh, but I just want to bring Michael in.
0: Yeah, it was just building on that. You know, I mean, I wrote down prior to the conversation today, you know, as technology made us lazy. And and so we've, you know, we've just covered that off. But it's the bit about shortcuts. I have not thought about that. You know, I do. I've got twin daughters who are 13. we all do homework. And if they don't know something, it's straight on the technology, straight on the Siri, Straight into Alexa, la, 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 la. And we said those parents and worry that, that it's giving you the answer, but are you retaining it? You're not writing it down necessarily. So I'm wrestling with the shortcuts, I suppose, but they're doing what you'd expect them to do, right?
2: Absolutely. It's exactly what we expect them to do. And, you know, I think it's, I think it's so, so, so easy. This, this fear is super intuitive. Like the, these things, like all the solutions are so easy. It comes to us so easy, but I think you just hit it on a good point, which is, you know, when I was growing up, my dad would always tell me I had, look it up in the physical dictionary. (laughs) Don't go to the Google, just look it up in the actual dictionary. It's good for you to know how to use a dictionary. Well, here I am in my life. I, I don't, ever use a dictionary because I have Google, but my ability to maintain definitions, to maintain words, clearly, you know, it's worked for me so far. I've done quite well educationally, even though I wasn't really looking up words in the dictionary, in a physical dictionary, right? So I think it's, we really need to dig into what are the key skills as technology changes. Is the key skill looking it up on Google? Is that the part that's going to hinder us? Or is it our ability to take that information in, retain it, understand it, think critically about it. I think almost, you know, if I could get it from Google, maybe then I could spend more time on that other really fun stuff, thinking critically about the information and integrating it into my life.
1: And what I will say is I'm not entirely happy about letting go of my sat nav just yet, because I will get lost. Um, but let's go back to the user design aspect of this. And, you know, we've got these emerging technologies. we talked there about AI, machine learning. We've obviously got robotics and so on and so on. Uh, and I think what we're touching on here is is more than just user adoption challenges, but there are also cultural challenges. What, what are your thoughts on that?
2: So on cultural challenges, you know, culture can mean a lot of different things. Culture can mean, you know, national culture, regional culture, organizational culture. All of these things have an influence on user adoption and user consumption of technology. Um, One thing that comes to mind always is things like GDPR. And I always ask the question, well, does GDPR exist because the culture demanded it to, or is GDPR now pushing the culture in a specific direction? And the answer is probably both, right? In that certain cultures have higher demands for data trust and transparency than other cultures. So the question becomes, to me personally, I think it's always important to cater to the audience that has the highest standards, especially when it comes to things like data trust and transparency. We don't have GDPR here in the United States, but I think we will one day. And so I want to work to those standards right now and even maybe go beyond the standards or the compliance of GDPR to make sure that it's actually creating an environment with our users where they can trust and that they want to use our solutions. So it is regional and it will continue to be regional in terms of, you know, skepticism and trust in technology. And to me, that just means that I want to cater to the biggest critic, <laughs> the biggest skeptic. That's the audience I'm shooting for.
0: I think
1: you also mentioned it earlier as well. The technology is starting to go beyond what I thought it was going to do. It's learning more about me than I A thought I was learning myself, but also that I was prepared for that technology to learn about me. And and maybe that drives some of that oversight, if you like, of things like GDPR, where people are pushing back and saying, well, hang on, that's going a bit too far now. Let's put some constraints in place rather than, you know, the technology is growing towards the boundary. It's actually the technology is way beyond that boundary and we're pulling it back a little bit. Is that fair?
2: I think it's critical. I think it's important. I wish that legislation was not necessary i wish that we would have the drive to create ethical technology from the get-go and you know there obviously it's a very complex conversation in terms of you know targeted advertising and things like it, it just it is incredibly profitable. Personally, I would love it so we would have these ethics in mind from the forefront. I almost feel like the technology evolved so quickly that ethics didn't have a chance to catch up about like, hey, whoa, hold on. Maybe we should think about this. And so I think that's led us to a place where legislation has had to step in and say, hey, this is too far. We need to rein it back. We need to inform our users. We need people to have control of their data, so on and so forth.
1: Absolutely love this conversation. I think it's been enthralling, uh, and I think it appeals to a very wide audience. Hopefully, as well, because we've, I think we've delved all around this topic. But let, let's come back to some practical advice and wisdom, if you can. We always like to close out the podcast with some top tips or pieces of advice. And I you know, wanted to get your thoughts here. If, if I'm sitting there and I'm thinking about designing a user experience or designing something that I know has a user buy-in that's necessary for it to be used, what, what are some of your biggest tips or lessons learned that you could give to somebody in, in that environment?
2: Probably my biggest piece of advice or key takeaway is to take a step back really what this comes down to is a lot of people have the question of like, Caitlin, you're a psychologist. Why are you in this area of talking about technology and design? And it's because we need to take a step back. And I'm thinking about this a lot these days as we move forward with this exploding conversation around the metaverse, um, which I think is a really interesting conversation. But it, it always highlights to me that People have this drive to create things for things sake. (laughs) And we don't often or frequently enough take the step back to understand what is the human need that this technology is solving. And so for all these new, these AR, these VR technologies that are coming into the, especially into the business world, for entertainment's sake, it makes sense. We've had the metaverse in the video gaming industry, for example, for a number of years now. But when it comes to translating these into business use cases, what is the human need that you are solving? Is this technology solving a novel problem or is it solving a classic problem in a novel way? And once we have that established, the use case has to be so clearly established. Now we can talk about going into the technology acceptance model. We've got that technology that's solving a problem. Now let's go and make a really killer design, something that's so easy, simple, intelligent, integrated, easy to use. And then we're going to come out with you know, to the market with these amazing technologies that are going to make people's lives better. So that's my key takeaway is take a step back and think about the human need that's driving your technology that you are creating.
1: And I've absolutely and thoroughly enjoyed this conversation it has been absolutely fascinating. Uh, I've taken a lot away from that as well. Uh, I think Michael is rethinking his decision on his Apple Watch right right as we speak. And I certainly want to go and do some uh, background reading now on that iParadox triad uh, document that you mentioned. I've loved the conversation. I love the way you've explained things and you set that into context, but also you kept it to the human element. And that's really what we're looking for in these podcasts. So I just want to extend a a very big thank you for uh, being our guest on the show today. And I want to um, stay in touch so that we can talk more about this you know, outside of the episode. So thank you once again.
2: Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure.
1: I loved how that debate went and and more specifically how its focus was on the human elements rather than too much about the technology itself and for me that's what the podcast is really all about. It's less about technology and and keeping current with all of those latest changes that, that are happening in the technology space but more of its impact and more of its direction provided by the human factors themselves. So really fascinated to hear. Uh, how all of our questions you know, came back to the human nature that underlines the usage of the technology in there.
0: I totally agree with your points completely, Simon. I was looking forward to having that conversation about the psychology that is going into this work. I, I'm enthralled by the fact that we now curate our own experiences at home. We, we now bring those expectations now into the workplace. And I think you know we talked in a little bit about the potential dark side and I think there's more to come on that debate. I think as we really get into AI and 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 how we utilise that, you know, day to day, what that looks like, what that what that means. But it was just refreshing conversation, really, really interesting to meet Caitlin and to get into that thinking behind this. So, for me, another great episode, great conversation, loved it. Uh, and we will move on to our next episode very, very soon. So I hope everybody enjoys listening to it again as much as we enjoyed recording it. But until then, goodbye.